Hello, I'm Wayne Park, and welcome to Oikonomics, a podcast about the science of ministry, work, administration, and the summing up of everything. Keep coming back for relevant teachings and talks on these subjects and more. Please enjoy the show. So in the last episode, I talked about the wealthy and the kingdom of God. Today, I'm going to talk about the poor and the kingdom of God. As we continue in our discussions about truly spiritual vocation, mind you, once again, we're not just talking about spiritual work as in ministry, but we're talking about all work as spiritual. And so just as much as we talked about the economics of the kingdom and about the rich getting into the kingdom of God in the last episode, this episode, I would like to talk instead about the poor and along two headings specifically. The first heading is work for the poor and second is working for the poor. Just a slight change in in verb tense there. Work for the poor and working for the poor. Um, The first heading will probably be the bulk of our talk today. Um, And the last, the second piece will probably go quickly. But I'd like to begin by talking about work for the poor or work from the perspective of the poor. And while I cannot say that I have been... um, destitute or poor in the same way as in uh, the biblical witness and some of these some of these poor people of the land. Um, I'm doing my best to get into the story and to unpack an understanding and hopefully maybe even a theology um, of the poor here, especially as it pertains to work and economics. So I'm going to read for us from Mark chapter 12. Uh, particularly verse 41 to verse 44. Mark 12, 41 to 44. This pericope is about um, the widow who gives all of her money to the temple, treasury. And it's uh, it might have been titled in some translations, the, the widow's might or the generosity of the poor. And in traditional readings of this passage, uh, it's been understood and and used and preached on as the model of generosity. And so let me go ahead and read from Mark chapter 12, verse 41. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, He said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. You can almost hear the reverence dripping in Jesus' voice here as he upholds this paragon of generosity, And therefore, when the offering plate comes around, you should put in not just half or a tenth of what's in your, put in, dish out everything, put everything, turn your pockets out and give all to the church for Jesus calls us to live with such generosity. This is the traditional and historic understanding. 
And mind you, I would argue the wrong understanding of this passage. But first, let me expound that historic and traditional reading. Um, it says in verse 44 that, uh, relatively speaking, the rich give money to the temple out of their surplus. Uh, the Greek word there, parasuo, speaks of an abundance and particularly an overflow. So you have money. If you have $100,000 and you give $10,000, you can live on $90,000. Uh, the overflow is what they're giving from, their wealth. Jesus appears here to be rebuking uh, the Jewish perspective on giving from this overflow, from this overflowing cup. Um, in some Jewish ceremonies I've seen where there's uh, this pouring of wine and they will deliberately allow the wine to overflow the goblet um, and, and, and literally to kind of spill out. Uh, they have a catching tray. But the idea is that God will fill our own cup first and then give overflow for others. Otherwise, why waste good wine? Well, what God can afford, especially in his generosity to us, we can afford out of our overflow to give, out of our parasuo and our abundance. Um, but contrasting with that, and this is how the wealthy give, out of their extra. We have wine and it's flowing freely. Let it overflow and give it to the poor. But contrast to that, the widow, she gives out of her essence, not out of the overflow, but out of the cup itself. She drains the last drop and gives it to God. And what's a, what appears to be stated here, uh, that's what it appears to be saying here, is, is verse 44, the latter part. She, out of her poverty, puts in what she owned, all she had to live on. In other words, she wasn't giving out of her overflow, but she was giving out of her essence. We would see that um, even in the Greek where uh, there's two ways to say you know, all she had to live on, that word live, or she gave out of her life, you can use the word zoe, uh, which is this overflowing and abundant life. I have so much life and exuberance and vitality. I have enough to spare. It's overflowing. That's zoe. Uh, there's another word in Greek for life, and it's bios or bios. And um, that's actually the word that's used here, holanton, beyond autes, beyond or or bios, bios, it's where we get the word biology. And this word connotes uh, essential life, life, sustenance, uh, your heartbeat, your livelihood. So she's not giving out of her zoe and my abundance and my exuberance and all of the life that I have. She is giving out of her bios, the gritty life essence. This is my lifeblood that I'm, that I'm spilling into the temple treasury, and I'm giving of my very life. And this, this is how we should give to the church, is it not? My saints, this is what we should do. Therefore, turn out your pockets. This is a misappropriate, this is a misunderstanding and a misuse of this reading. I would argue, I would argue. There is an alternative reading here, which, uh, you know, already I've kind of put out my, um, scholarly objectivity, and I'm telling you, this is the right way to understand this passage. The alternative reading, which I believe is the correct reading, it, it doesn't just read this, pa this passage alone in isolation. 
It takes into account context and, in particular, placement of this pericope. Um, just immediately prior to this passage, just prior to verse 41, if you rewind back to verse 38, Jesus says this, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. Now you heard the emphasis in my voice there. And for some of you, wait, 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 did I just hear? Was that really there in the scripture? You know, just prior to the widow's story, Jesus pronounces this indictment, this condemnation of the scribes who like their respectful greetings and they, they like the chief seats and the places of honors. This is anything but kenosis. This is, this is Darwinian will to power at its worst. And we're getting philosophical here. We're, you know, throwing down. Oh, and by the way, they devour widows' houses. I do not think it's coincidence that Jesus mentions this, this particular phrase, the scribes devour the houses of the widows, and then immediately follows up, oh, and by the way, perfect case in point, watch this. Here comes a widow. She's kind of trundling along with this little, you know, you know, this little, I can picture my Korean grandmother. She has these, this little sack that has a few coins in it, and she opens it up and she just drops those coins in the treasury. Is Jesus really appraising this superior generosity that we should all model after and aspire to? Or is he condemning something higher? You see, be, beware. Beware when you hear teaching that will take pericope without considering the context. That will take stories or little passages and not be cognizant of the larger th- setting. You see, I would, I would put forth that in the background of this story, just like any Broadway musical, I love, I love Broadway and theater. I mean, I, heck, I just love a good story. But, you know, if you've ever seen a play, one of the most beautiful things, it's, it's, a, it's a, complete, um, a complete sensory experience. Uh, you, you see, you, you, you hear the beautiful uh, music, and there's the orchestra, and then there's the singing, or maybe there's the rap. And, and then you see the setting, and it's artistic, and it's beautiful. And, it's, and if you could just imagine that this was, this was a Broadway play, and the scribes are singing, and they're in the back, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and Jesus is singing, and he's pronouncing this judgment. What is in the backdrop of this whole theatrical performance? I would say in the backdrop, the, the, the background, is the temple. It's the temple. In fact... I would say behind chapters 11, 12, and 13, behind all of these chapters in Mark, 11, 12, and 13, is, it's all sung against the backdrop of this huge edifice, the second temple of Judaism. Jesus continues, not, not just prior to the story, but afterwards, um, In chapter 13, verse 1, immediately following the story of the widow who gives everything to the temple, every last drop. In chapter 13, verse 1, as Jesus was going out of the temple, 
One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Ooh, Jesus, why would you say such a thing? Jesus, you're so grim, you're so dark, you're so subversive. There's, you're, he's so unimpressed. I mean, there's this, like, what does he have against the temple? I mean, what is he, what is he, what is he driving at here? And here I want to teach a little bit of um, historic, uh, historic theology about the backdrop of the second temple. Uh, Mind you, I'm saying the second temple. There was a first temple uh, during uh, Old Testament times. The second temple was was built, uh, rebuilt, I should say, during the exile, circa about 500 B.C., under religious reforms. The first temple was destroyed. Um, And now it's rebuilt with these religious reforms conducted by Ezra, Nehemiah, and the subsequent, listen to this, scribal system. So what's, what's arising at this time is this new vision of Judaism under Ezra and Nehemiah um, that would eventually, in its later iterations, come to become Phariseeism. So this new scribal system um, would come forth, this, that, that would become this new vision of Judaism. You see, Judaism wasn't always like that. But now, under the scribes, this new vision of Judaism is coming forth. In particular, it requires literacy. Because in order to become uh, a good Jew, so to speak, to be recognized, to reconstitute the people of God, to, to usher in the return of, of, of the kingdom and Messiah, they, it required something called Torah intensification intensifying Torah. And if you were going to intensify Torah, um, and they, they would build layers, so they called it building a hedge around the law. They didn't want to break the law. They certainly, you know, breaking the law is what lost us the temple and, and their national sovereignty and got them in this bad state in the first place. You know, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans and the Greeks, I mean, they've, they've conquered us and they've supplanted us as the the, the owners of our own land. Why? Because we broke the law. So they would, they would build secondary law. The scribal system would do this. Jesus, Jesus uh, in many ways, he, he, he chafed against this. He said, your second, your law, your, your, your halakha, I've talked about this in the previous episode, your secondary law, it kind of loses the essence of the law. And in addition to that, it required something that a lot of people in the land did not have access to, namely, literacy. In order to intensify Torah, you needed to be literate. And at that time, most of the people of the land were not. And therefore, they could not keep the law. You see, Jesus was not only uh, a man of the law, but he was also a man of the people. So simultaneously, man of the law and man of the people, he stood for these things. In fact, I'd like to make the case that Jesus was offering his own competing vision of Judaism, one that would be centered on him, and not just on this edifice of the temple with its caretakers who were the scribes and the Pharisees and 
the Torah intensification, the system that they've that they've propped up along with its offerings and its sacrifices. You see, such a system was oppressive. It was oppressive to the poor. And Jesus wouldn't stand for this. I mean, shouldn't true Judaism care for the widow and the poor and the alien and the destitute and not exploit them and take their bios? And in many ways, that's what I believe Jesus was onto in this passage. So when we hear this this pericope about the, the widow's might, it's not an appraisal of, of the widow's charity as if it's some somehow the paragon that we should be giving this way. That that's that's a good message, but that's just not the message conveyed here. Actually, Jesus's tone is one that is more condemning of the system the system of religion, and even the economic system that destitutes the poor. And with incisive critique, I believe he is saying this should not be. This should not be. You see, today, as we talk about work for the poor, what I'm trying to do is to get us into this place where we're able to see that this is not just about you know, individual and individuals and, and their generosity, what we're talking about are systems and the effect that they have on the poor. Let me take my case just a little bit further here. If you're not convinced, you know, I say that the backdrop of this, of this theatric musical for the last three chapters, Mark 11, 12, and 13, the backdrop is the temple. Listen to this in, in chapter 11, verse 13 of Mark. It says, seeing, a dis- seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, Jesus went to see if he would find any figs. He found nothing. And he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And, he, and then he enters the temple and begins driving out those who are buying and selling. Now, one really wonders, what is Jesus thinking about here? What does he really, what does he have against this poor fig tree? Or maybe he's just really hangry. Like, I really wanted some fig newtons. I really needed to eat right now. And then immediately afterwards, um, he drives the, the money changers, the commerce, out of the temple. Friends, I, if this is not a commentary, this entire section on the temple, I don't know what is. And later on in chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus begins to speak this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He talks about a vineyard. What is, he, what is Jesus, you know, what is he so involved with here about fig trees and vineyards and, and greenery? And Well, actually, these in many ways, I think, are, are Jesus' metaphors for um, Second Temple Judaism to the system that really would end up being quite oppressive to the poor. In fact, that allusion to the vineyard there, um, I am convinced, is a reference to an Old Testament Isianic or passage from the book of Isaiah that actually the vineyard is a metaphor for Israel herself. So I would say that this passage about the Oh, this wonderful poor woman as she gives everything that she has. No, it is not about destituting the poor, forcing them, somehow obliging them to give every last drop. In fact, I would say it's a protest to that kind of system. It's a protest of that kind of exploitation. And by and large, 
we should work to reverse that. You know, just to conclude, you know, this, this, this first heading of work for the poor. Work for the poor should not destitute the poor. Uh, it should not destitute them. It should not lead them to utter poverty, that every last penny that, they're, that they have to live on is, is spent just on survival such that they have nothing left over. In fact, the systems, rather than destituting them, whether, whether they're economic or even religious systems, the systems should serve uh, towards the purpose of uplift, opportunity, wealth creation. And again, you might say, Wayne, you don't know what you're talking about. This is pie-in-the-sky talk. I, I'm going to, don't worry, I'm going to get a little bit more granular here. There's more theory behind this. What I, what I, what I do want to reiterate once again is this idea of the preferential option for the poor that basically says our policy must protect the weakest among us. I, for one, would argue that that is a that is a Christian economic right there. That is a Christian posture to say our policy should not reward just the wealthy, but it should, it should keep the poor and the weakest among us forefront of our policymaking decisions. And that's, that's that uh, Catholic social teaching of the preferential option for the poor. I think that that is um, good policymaking and uh, Christian theology reflected in economics. Now, mind you, you might think that Wayne is advocating for socialism here. Here's where I want to say a flip side to this. I don't think that in the final assessment that we can say, economically speaking, socialism, it, we can't say it works. I mean, I think we have, we have history. We have a track record of history to see that... Um, uh, totalitarian communism and socialism, really, it, it does not work. I would go so far as to say, out of the two, um, capitalism is probably the lesser of two evils um, because of its capacity for wealth creation and for upward mobility. And I would go so far as to say... Um, uh, the globalization of free markets, uh, I, for one, am of the view that it is a good answer to poverty. Some of the data from the World Bank and other you know, World Health Organizations, some of the data really shows the evidences of this even in the last 20 years. So, um, you know, you're hearing me speak with nuance here um, because... While I do believe capitalism is the better alternative, I do have problems with the idea that success can be simply attainable and accessible if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard enough. The reality is today, women continue to get paid significantly less than their male counterparts. Businesses continue to be dominated by old boys clubs. And the poor, they have had significant generational setbacks in wealth creation in many cases, in many cases. Are there one-off stories, success stories? Yes, there are. But these are very real systemic forces that make it hard, that make it challenging, that make it difficult for the poor. 
So when we talk about work for the poor, you know, there's the old saying, live a day in their shoes. For me, it's sociological callousness and it's economic naivete to think we all come out at the same starting gate. May we work towards a vision of the kingdom where wealth-creating pathways and well-being are increasingly realities for all. And on that note, I'd like to finish off with the second piece, the second heading, working for the poor. Working for the poor, and what does that mean? I will say, if we capture this vision of the preferential option for the poor, uh, it, it has a way of changing our complete outlook on why we work. And I'd like to finish off here with three principles or three applications of this theory, of this preferential option for the poor. The first is this, the poor come first. That's it, that's the first principle, the poor come first. If you've read the scripture as I have, particularly the teachings of Jesus, I think you would agree with me that in this, in the vision of the kingdom, in Jesus' teaching, the poor are first. Again, this is basically the preferential option for the poor applied. The second principle is this. The best way to serve the poor is to create wealth. The best way to serve the poor is to create more wealth, not redistribute wealth. I think if anything modern economics has taught us is that uh, it need not, this, it's not a zero-sum game where if one person hoards more wealth, that means less for another person. But that there is such a thing as wealth creation. That's why I'm talking about opportunities and creating wealth, creating opportunities. And that the creation of wealth, the creation of work, the creation of jobs, the creation of opportunities, the creation of livelihoods, um, the creation of businesses and industries is the end goal. Because in the, in the ultimate end, the poor are not looking for handouts. They're looking for dignity. They're looking for usefulness. They're looking for agency. And so arguably, this is, this is what I would like to put forth, the best way to serve them is to create more wealth. It's wealth-creating opportunities. Now, third and last, this is the last piece that I, the last uh, principle that I'd like to uh, present here. Therefore, in light of the above, the pursuit of wealth is appropriate and reasonable if the primary motivation is to serve the poor. The pursuit of wealth is appropriate and reasonable if the primary motivation is to serve the poor. And what I've done in that last and final statement is really synthesize everything I've taught in these last two, uh, in these last two sessions uh, or these last two weeks of SF506, uh, in the last four podcasts, really, where I'm talking about can you get the king, the, the rich in the kingdom of God? Is there an economics of the kingdom? Uh, is there even a place for the rich in the kingdom of God? What does, this, what does it mean for the poor in the kingdom of God? Can I get in the kingdom of God if I am wealthy? Which really disqualifies a lot of us in the first world. What I'm saying here in this third and last 
uh, principle is that <laughs> remove the shame from the equation. The pursuit of wealth, I'm not saying brazenly acquire and attain, but what I'm saying is if your wealth, if you can make your primary motivation to be the creation of more wealth for the poor, if we can have the poor foremost in our minds, then I would say have at it. Pursue wealth because the growth of wealth arguably can create more wealth for others as well. And if your chief motivation is the creation of wealth for others and not just for yourself, then it is legitimate. In conclusion, I will share with you, um, I'm currently reading this massive uh, tome, this this huge thick book called The Prize. And um, it's not the first book I've read about the energy industry and about oil and gas. Uh, living in Houston, I've become well acquainted with the industry and I've read a good number of books. Um, it certainly is, however, the thickest book. And I'm reading about um, <laughs> I'm really reading about the early uh, founder of uh, Royal Dutch Shell and, and the founder of Standard Oil and, and Rockefeller. And, and you can hear about how they were, driven, they were driven by a need to create order in the industry. And some of them saw that their objective was to contribute to the industrialization of America and to really build the country. They saw themselves as creating wealth for many people, uh, as well as opportunities and work and jobs. But some of them were just crass, greedy capitalists. And there's a nuance there. That friends, if we give ourselves to the, 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 the worst part of our natures, if we give ourselves over to the darker side of ourselves where we're just pursuing wealth just for the wealth's sake to entertain some greed within ourselves. I mean, that must be examined. That is the question in closing that I wish to pose to you, to think about, to consider as you work faithfully, not just for selfish purposes, but for canonic purposes, that you see that indeed, in the preferential option for the poor, the poor come first. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to learn more, visit us online at www.oikonomics.com. That's O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-K-S dot com.